Welcome to Sullivan and Cromwell's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Andrew Kaufman, an associate in SNC's litigation group. With me today is Bill Monahan, head of SNC's products liability and mass torts group. Today, we'll be discussing an often overlooked but important tool in defending against claims alleging consumer fraud in products cases, early settlement offers and offers of judgment. Thanks, Andrew. This is Bill Monahan. This is an important topic, not so much for settlement purposes, but for litigation defense purposes. It's a weapon for defendants that we don't see utilized enough. Bill, could you start us off with an overview of why early settlement offers and offers of judgment may be an important weapon for defendants? Definitely. Again, it's important to emphasize at the outset that these strategies are not about settling a case. In most cases we've been a part of where we've utilized this strategy, the consumer says no to the settlement offer, let's litigate. And that's okay. The fact of the offer is what matters. It's a risk-shifting event, and let me explain why. Most consumer litigation in products cases is going to involve a claim under one or more state consumer protection statutes. These statutes are different from common law fraud claims in at least two significant respects. One, they often provide for fee shifting. If the plaintiff prevails at trial, the defendant will be on the hook in the ordinary course for some amount of the plaintiff's legal fees. Often, especially in cases when there's no claimed personal injury, fees will exceed any plausible economic injury the plaintiff suffered. Two, many of these consumer protection statutes contain provisions expressly governing pretrial settlement offers, and even more importantly, how the making of a pretrial settlement offer can affect the plaintiff's ultimate recovery, including with respect to fees. Andrew, I know you've had a lot of experience researching and analyzing these statutes. Can you walk us through how these provisions generally work? Sure, Bill. There's obviously nuance in the various statutes across 50 states, but as a general matter, most statutes require the consumer to provide pre-suit notice to the defendant. This typically takes the form of a notice letter, setting out the alleged violation and demanding some form of relief. The defendant usually has a set period of time, often 30 days, to respond. And what should practitioners focus on when drafting responses to these sorts of pre-suit notice letters? In the first instance, you should check if the relevant statute has any specific procedural requirements. In our experience, plaintiffs tend to send very vague and often boilerplate notice letters, and it's a good idea to check the statute, argue that the notice is defective if you can, and reserve defenses to the notice's adequacy when you first respond. Many statutes also provide that after sending the notice letter, a plaintiff must wait a certain period of time before filing suit. Plaintiff's counsel often fails to comply with this requirement in the rush to be the first to file litigation. In some cases, courts have found that the failure to wait the requisite period of time means dismissal, and sometimes with prejudice. So if a plaintiff files suit prematurely before your statutory response period has expired, you should note this in your response letter and then explore your dismissal arguments. 
Now, beyond these initial considerations, Bill, maybe you can lead us through some of the substantive requirements of a useful response. They vary by state, but many states provide that in its response, the defendant can make some form of settlement offer, whether through a formal offer of judgment or through other less formal means. Most states don't require a formal offer of judgment. If the plaintiff accepts the offer, then that's the end of the matter. But in the more likely scenario, when the plaintiff rejects the offer, that can be a very valuable defense for the defendant later on in the case. In many states, if a plaintiff rejects a pre-suit settlement offer and then ultimately wins a trial but recovers less than the offered amount, the plaintiff cannot recover any attorney's fees incurred after the date of the rejected offer, even though the plaintiff prevailed at trial. In California, the defense goes even further. The California Consumer Legal Remedies Act also known as the CLRA, provides that if a defendant makes an appropriate settlement offer, the fact of that offer is a complete defense, even to liability for the defendant. Although a defendant is not going to know whether the offer is appropriate until a much later stage in the case, perhaps even after trial, the mere making of that offer shifts significant risk to plaintiff's counsel, risk that otherwise wouldn't exist if you didn't make that offer. And that's because most plaintiff's lawyers in products cases have contingency fee arrangements with their clients and aren't paid fees by their clients, but instead by defendants if the plaintiff is the prevailing party. Andrew, you've put together a number of these response letters over the years. Do you have any practice pointers? So there's no one-size-fits-all solution, but there are a few things to think about. First, you need to think about what to offer. The offer is ultimately going to be judged either against damages awarded at trial or against some objective standard of appropriateness. So you should consider the form of relief you're offering. Can you offer a fix for the product, a replacement product? Should you offer a buyback, cash compensation? If part of this is influenced by state law, you know, some laws require a cash offer, others are more flexible. Ultimately, you want to make a thoughtful offer that considers both the requirements of the statute and the extent of the claimed injury. You should also generally try to make the offer as concrete as reasonably possible. While some states are silent on this, some require the allocation of a specified monetary sum in an offer. Finally, you should consider whether the offer should include a component for plaintiff's legal fees. Some statutes specifically require that an offer addresses the plaintiff's legal fees, while others do not. One option that is often available, particularly if litigation has already begun, is to offer reasonable fees in an amount to be decided by the court. This can be a good strategy when it is difficult to know the amount of fees plaintiff has incurred but you want to make sure that you are satisfying the requirements of the relevant statute. We've been talking, Andrew, about offer provisions in state consumer protection statutes, but another option, at least if you're in federal court, is a federal rule of civil procedure 68 offer of judgment. Andrew, can you do only one or the other? So they're not mutually exclusive. Both can be valuable, including in tandem. 
Federal Rule 68 allows a party in a federal lawsuit at any time prior to 14 days before trial to make an offer to allow judgment on specified terms. Rule 68 bars any recovery of costs incurred after the date of a rejected offer if the offer is more favorable than the final judgment. Rule 68 also shifts the offering party's post-offer costs onto the rejecting party in these circumstances. What is included in these costs gets into some complicated procedural territory, but sometimes these costs can include attorney's fees. Well, what determines whether Rule 68 shifts attorney's fees and not just expenses? It ultimately depends on the underlying claim. The Supreme Court has held that Rule 68 costs include attorney's fees where the underlying statute defines fees as part of costs, as opposed to treating costs and attorney's fees as separate items. So as always, you should take a close look at the statute underlying the relevant claim. Bill, can you discuss a little bit what a Rule 68 offer has that state consumer protection statutes may not? Rule 68 offers apply broadly to all of the claims in the case. So even if a statute does not contain a settlement offer provision, a Rule 68 offer can still be used. Rule 68 offers also are not subject to the timing deadlines that apply to some statutory consumer protection offers, so they can be made at a later stage in the case and still be useful. And Rule 68 also contemplates not only cutting off accrual of costs and potentially fees, but also putting a party who rejects a reasonable offer on the hook for the other side's costs going forward. And so depending on the statutory claim, a Rule 68 offer can actually require the plaintiff to pay the defendant's legal fees. And when the strategy, as here, is about shifting risk to plaintiff and plaintiff's counsel, that can be very significant. So, Bill, what are some challenges that arise in making effective use of early settlement offers and offers of judgment? One big issue is the stage of factual development. Is this a case where there is an undisputed defect with the product, or is this a case where the underlying facts are very much in dispute and the client plans on vigorously contesting liability across the board? In the first situation, the decision to make an offer may be clear-cut or more clear-cut. Even more so if you have a consumer who plainly suffered some amount of damages from the alleged defect. Getting out ahead of these claims through either a statutory offer or a Rule 68 offer can make a good deal of sense. In the second situation, the calculation is more difficult. Because the state statutes generally have fairly short deadlines, there may not be time to fully grasp the relevant facts and defenses before having to make the decision whether to make an offer. In those situations, if you're in federal court, a Rule 68 offer closer to the time of trial may be a more realistic option. States also have analogous offer of judgment rules, which may be handy in cases pending in state court. And in a practical sense, how does using a settlement offer like this play out in court in an actual case? Well, we saw this, you and I, in practice for Volkswagen last year in its first bellwether opt-out trial in San Francisco on the Volkswagen diesel emissions issues. We represented Volkswagen in that trial. The law was clear, the parties also agreed, that the appropriateness of Volkswagen's settlement offer to the consumer opt-out plaintiffs was an issue for the judge to decide at trial, not the jury. 
So in that case, the issue actually took the form of a bench trial. The bench trial involved evidence that the consumer class action settlements in Volkswagen, which all of the opt-out plaintiffs had been offered three years prior to trial, provided more to the opt-outs than any damages they suffered. The class action settlement consisted both of emissions fixes for the cars as well as cash compensation. Volkswagen put on witnesses at trial who described how the monetary figures for the settlements were arrived at and who described the technical nature of the fixes and how they adequately addressed the underlying emissions issues. Volkswagen ultimately prevailed. Uh, as a result, the court entered judgment for Volkswagen on plaintiff's fee-shifting CLRA claim. And that's an example that really goes to show how critical this potentially overlooked issue can be and how it can have meaningful consequences years down the road in litigation. Uh, thanks, Bill, for joining me today to discuss early settlement offers and offers of judgment in products cases. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. Mm-hmm.